All right, in Titus chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 10 through 16. And in these verses, remember last week, we went through Titus 1 and we talked about the qualifications for elders. And remember, Paul writes to Titus and he says, I commanded you to appoint elders in all the cities. Well, in these verses, in chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, we're going to see why it was vitally important for Paul to command Titus to appoint elders in all the cities. Not just to appoint elders, but to appoint qualified elders. Without qualified shepherds, the sheep were in danger of the wolves. And do you know what wolves do with sheep? They eat them. They devour them. Paul commanded Titus to appoint elders in all the churches, in all the cities, so that the wolves would not devour the sheep. Let's read from our text today, Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not, For the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this gospel. Lord, by your Holy Spirit dwelling in us, lead us and guide us into truth, mold us and shape us that we would be transformed, no longer being conformed to this world. But in that transformation, God, you would cause us to become more and more conformed to the very image of the Son of Glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things in that name, in the name of Christ, that we would be a people to glorify you in this earth. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul begins here in verse 10 of Titus chapter 1, and he says there are many insubordinate. Listen to the context of Paul's command. Remember the command to Titus was to appoint elders in all the church. I'm going to read verse 5, and then I'm going to skip down to verse 10, because verses 6 through 9, Paul lists the qualifications for elders. But in verse 5, 10, and 11, we see the reason why those elders, those qualified elders, are to be appointed. Titus chapter 1, verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Verse 10, For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, 
whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. Paul is commanding Titus to support or to appoint elders in every city as commanded, for there are many rebellious, that's what that word insubordinate means, those insubordinate are those who are rebellious to the authority. There are many rebellious ones who are not subject specifically to God's authority. These insubordinate rebels are described by Paul as both idle talkers and deceivers. Now, Paul's writing this letter, and he's not writing to the church about those outside the church. He's writing to the church about those inside the church. We know people outside the church who are not in Christ, who do not profess faith in Christ. We know that, that they're idle talkers. We know that they're deceived. We know that what they believe is wrong and what they teach is wrong. The problem is not those outside the church. The problem that Paul is addressing with Titus are those inside the church who are professing to believe God, to know God, but their lives are communicating, their teaching is communicating something different. Paul calls them insubordinate. They're rebellious to the authority that God has given us in his word. So Paul calls them idle talkers. This means that they are speaking but their words are empty. The words are empty of truth, and they are vain words that have no meaning. They're empty of any meaning, of anything that can provide and produce life. They are chattering on with empty tales in an attempt to deceive. So they're purposeful about what they're doing. They're not just people who are deceived, they are people who are set out to deceive. And so Paul calls them not just idle talkers, but he said they are deceivers. So worse than just empty talk, they are intent upon using their idle talk to deceive and lead people astray. The result is according to Paul, is that they are subverting whole households. Paul writes that these idle talkers, these deceivers, are especially those of the circumcision. That means that they were Jews. Of the circumcision means that these were not Gentile believers, but Jewish believers. They're called Judaizers. So these are Jews who have professed faith in Jesus as their Messiah with one caveat. If you're going to truly be saved and truly be a follower of the Messiah, you must keep the law of Moses. And if you do not keep the law of Moses, then you are not truly saved. And if you are a Gentile, you can have faith in the Messiah and you can be counted as a faithful follower of the Messiah, but only once you convert to Judaism and you adhere to the law. Not just in Paul's letter to Titus, 
But in many of Paul's letters throughout the New Testament, this is what Paul is wrestling with in these churches. Because Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles, to the nations, these Judaizers would follow Paul and he, they would go into these churches and they would try to convince these Gentile believers and these Jews that we've got to get these Gentiles to submit to the law of Moses. And so there were all kinds of fables and all kinds of commandments of men that Paul was fighting against, opposing in his letters. This is what's happening here in his letter to Titus. These Jews, while at least with their mouth professing faith in Christ, were also affirming adherence to the law of Moses. And Paul indicates that their work, their teachings, were subversive. They were subverting whole households, he says. Thus, he makes this declaration, their mouths must be stopped. Titus 1.11, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole household, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. Why were they teaching the things that they were teaching? Paul says they were doing it for dishonest gain. In other words, it was benefiting themselves not the body of Christ. They weren't there to benefit the church or the body of Christ. They were there ultimately to benefit themselves. Whatever that might have worked, looked like, whether they were on a power trip or whether they were trying to gain uh, some type of wealth or possessions or something, Paul says their motive was dishonest gain. And he says this, whose mouths must be stopped. Literally, who must be silenced with the stopping of the mouth. Now think about that. These are strong words from the Apostle Paul. It reveals the vital importance of pastors properly guarding their flocks from the error that destroys the church by subverting families. This is why their mouths must be stopped because they are subverting whole households and they are teaching things which they should not be teaching and all for the sake of dishonest gain. So let's think about this, subverting whole households. That's a, that's a pretty strong accusation. Now Paul is not on the island of Crete when he's writing this letter, but Titus is. And word has no doubt gotten back to Paul. Paul was on Crete with Titus when he established these churches. Now Paul has moved on and Titus remains in Crete. And Paul is riding back to the island of Crete to Titus, telling him, you've got to set things in order. You must appoint elders in all the cities as I commanded you, qualified elders. And he lists out all of the qualifications of those elders that we talked about last week. And he says the reason this needs to happen is because these false teachers are coming into the church as idle talkers and deceivers, and they are subverting whole households. So he's warning that households are being subverted. The picture Paul is painting with his words in this letter is a picture of households, whole Families, whole households being turned over and destroyed, disrupted by these false teachings. 
This word subvert means to be upset, to be disrupted, to be ruined by turning over and turning away from the truth. All of this is happening due to these false teachers that are coming into the church. And it's not an accident there are, that there are not shepherds, pastors, elders, overseers in those churches functioning in that role to protect the sheep. If the sheep are just out there and there is no shepherd, they're left open to the wolves. And that's what's happening here in these churches on the island of Crete. Now here in Paul's letter to Titus, he doesn't give us a lot of detail other than Jewish fables and the commandments of men. But he doesn't really tell us what specific teachings are subverting whole households. But we do have a clue from Paul's letter to Timothy because this is not the only place that Paul is dealing with this issue. So in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, let's read this and we're going to see that Paul gives some more specifics that will help us understand perhaps what's happening on the island of Crete. Paul writes to Timothy, another pastoral letter. So just as Titus was a pastor, Timothy was a pastor. In the letters to Timothy and the letter to Titus were letters from Paul to these two pastors whom Paul is charging to guard, to oversee their flocks and to make sure that their flocks are protected and to encourage these pastors in their difficult but important work of nurturing and guarding the flock of God. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Now the Spirit express, expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. I think you should note that. Paul calls these deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. So he's telling us where these teachings are coming from, ultimately. Verse 2, speaking lies and hypocrisy having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Here's the teaching, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now, it's not that those perhaps were the only things, but I think it's safe to say from the evidence we see in Paul's letter to Titus that more than likely, at least these two things, if not other things, were there in Crete where Titus is charged to set things in order. This doctrine, this false doctrine of forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received. So these two things we see in these verses uh, in Paul's letter to Timothy. And they seem to fit the warnings that Paul is giving to Titus. False teachers were forbidding to marry. They were forbidding people to enter into marriage. Now when we think about how are the false teachings that Paul mentions that Titus is to guard against, these commandments from men who have abandoned the truth, how are these teachings, how are these commandments of men subverting whole households. Paul doesn't say they're just subverting some believers. He says they're subverting whole households. 
Now remember, a household in that time, in those ancient days, was a large operation. It was all the children, it was the parents, it was the grandparents, it was the servants, depending on whether this was a wealthy home or not. It, it was not necessarily a small operation. It wasn't just our four and no more. A household represented a, a sizable number of people potentially. And Paul, in a, in a general way, says that these teachings are subverting whole households. And I think that's something for us to consider. What teaching could possibly subvert whole households? Well, let's consider the teaching or the command that forbids marriage. If marriage was forbidden by these false teachers, it's not difficult to see how some in their zeal for these false doctrines in their effort to be made pure before the Lord would disrupt and turn over whole households as they abandoned their marriages. Whether those marriages were those who were betrothed to be married, yet had not consummated the marriage yet, but even when you were betrothed in the ancient world, you were as good as married. It wasn't a trial period. Let's, let's just shack up together and see how it all works out. If it works out, great. We'll keep living together. But if it doesn't work out, then we'll just go our separate ways. You realize in Paul's day, that's not how the world worked. People didn't just live together. If they did, it was scandalous. Today, it's commonly accepted. When you are betrothed to someone, you are promised to them. And to break that was, would be the same thing as people getting a divorce today who were legally married. So you can see in abandoning marriage, a couple that's betrothed to one another, or a father who says, oh, I don't believe in marriage anymore. To stay pure, my daughter, I'm going to forbid you from marrying the one you're betrothed to. That's not going to just disrupt his household. It's going to disrupt the household of the one she's betrothed to or he's betrothed to. And so as marriages were abandoned, think about those marriages already consummated. It's not difficult to see how disruptive this would be to whole households. Whatever that looked like, we know from Paul's letter to Timothy that there were false teachers who were forbidding people to enter into marriage. And if being unmarried makes you pure, then we can see how people abandoning marriage in whatever context that might be could be disruptive to whole households. Imagine a husband or a wife who decides marriage is forbidden and so to be abandoned. That sinful decision to abandon the marriage relationship would have a devastating impact on the family. That devastation would radiate out from the nucleus of the husband and wife, the father and the mother and the children, to all who are connected to that household. And there is no doubt this would disrupt the faith of those in that household. Maybe not all, but it would absolutely disrupt, it would subvert whole households. The same would hold true for a couple in their respective households if that decision was made to abandon marriage and they were simply betrothed to one another. Paul calls this 
a doctrine of demons, of forbidding and abandoning marriage. Now, it's one thing if someone is unmarried. Paul says if you're unmarried and you want to stay unmarried, there's no sin in that. That's your choice. You're free to do that. You're free to remain unmarried. You're free to get married. You're free to remain unmarried. But there is no command from God that says you cannot get married. You should not get married. To do so would be sinful. To do so would prevent you from being seen as pure and holy in God's sight. And this seems to be what was being taught by these false teachers. It's not liberty, it's legalism. It's false doctrine. And so Paul calls this a doctrine of demons. In Paul's day, it disrupted whole households. It turned over and destroyed households and families. It did in Paul's day, and it is in our own day. Now, we don't have, well, I say that. We typically don't have pastors preaching from the pulpit that people should not get married any longer. We don't have pastors necessarily saying that, but I think we do have a lot of pastors who look beyond and look past those people who have abandoned marriage for the sake of living together. We do live in a culture where the preachers of our culture, and you can find them everywhere, who are preaching a doctrine that marriage is antiquated, that marriage is equivalent to slavery, that marriage is something that should be done away with because it's old-fashioned, it's hurtful, it's harmful, and it's enslaving to women and to men. And so we're living in a culture where I do premarital counseling free through the state of Texas in a program called Together Texas. And I purposely do not charge for my premarital counseling because it's an opportunity for me to preach the gospel to people who come to me for premarital counseling. And if they come to me and take that counseling, they get a substantial discount on their marriage certificate. So do you know why most people come to me and want to get premarital counseling? Not because they want a firm foundation in their marriage. Some do, I'm sure. But most of them want the discount for the marriage certificate, which is fine. Because I have the opportunity to give them the gospel. And I'm going to tell you, in all my years of doing this, it is rare. It is the exception to have a couple come to me that is not already living together, who has not been living together for years. And, and they've got come to the place financially or they've come to the place where their kids are old enough and they kind of know uh, what marriage is and now they want to get married so they can say they're married to their kids, whatever reason. But I've never had anyone come to me and say, well, it's because God, God established marriage and God commands that a man and a woman should be married before they come together and make a family. But that's what the Bible says. And you know what? I've got pastor friends who say, well, I wouldn't even do the premarital counseling. I say, well, no, I'm going to do the premarital counseling. If they need someone to, to, uh, uh, to, to do the wedding, as long as they're both believers, I'll do the wedding. 
and then encourage them to live for God, obey God, and follow his word. But my point is we're living in a time in our modern world today where marriage is being largely abandoned. This trend is being encouraged inside and outside the church. And the exception is in the case of sinful same-sex unions that are erroneously referred to as a marriage. They're not a marriage. And most of these unions referred to as marriages are now promoted to make a political statement and to redefine the family and to redefine marriage. But marriage is not defined by man. Marriage is not defined by the culture. Marriage is not even defined by the Supreme Court. Marriage was created by God, and it has been defined by God in his word. Jesus made the definition of marriage very clear when he was asked about divorce. Let me read you the words of Jesus, Matthew 19, 4 through 6. And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Marriage is an institution created by God when he created the family with the first man and the first woman. He created them male and female. At creation, God established the gender binary of male and female. This defines marriage. This defines the family. This is the foundation of civilization. Abandon marriage, abandon gender, abandon the family, and you abandon the church and the culture to chaos. And this is what we're seeing taking place all around us today. People tell me every day without fail, somebody says to me, this is crazy. The world has gone crazy. I can't believe. Look at this headline. Look at this news article. It sounds like something someone would just make up. This is crazy. This is chaotic. Yes, it is. And it's on purpose. Because in that craziness, in that chaos, in that destruction of everything that's foundational, there is an opportunity seen by these false teachers, these false prophets in creating a culture of chaos. Now, when we talk about gender, that's not to say that people can't be confused about their gender, discontent with their gender. I'm not saying that's not real. But it is to say that a person's confusion or their intense desire concerning gender cannot, does not change the fact that in the beginning God made them male and female. To believe or to live otherwise is sin, period. Plain and simple. It's sin. Man's sin cannot change 
God's created order. Try as he might, imagine as he might, dress as he might, act as he might, change all the pronouns you want across all the platforms you want, and it doesn't change the truth. And as the church, we need to not only realize that, know that, acknowledge that, we need to be bold about standing up for that. Well, yeah, but you know, that's going to really make people upset. Jesus made people so upset, they crucified him. Do we really expect that if we live the way Jesus commands us to live and walk in the truth as he commands us to walk in the truth, do we really believe that we will not be upsetting to the people around us who want to oppose the truth, reject the truth, and rewrite their own truth? It's not going to happen. The family, the family is the first institution God created. The family is the building block of civilization. But more importantly, the family is the building block of the church. This is why the church is called the family of God, the bride of Christ. And we are known as children of God. The subversion of the family is the subversion of the church. This is why... Paul writes that their mouths must be stopped. This is the strategy of the enemy, and we need to see this and understand this. This is why Paul called these false teachings doctrines of demons. As the church, we are charged to stand against the doctrines and the strategies of the enemy that subvert the family and the church of the Lord Jesus. This is why Christ Fellowship purposes to take a strong stand to defend the sanctity of life, the sanctity of marriage, the sanctity of the family, and this is a defense of the church and the gospel. False teachers were instructing people to abstain from marriage, but also Paul writes that they were instructing them to abstain from certain foods. Again, we see the evidence of this as Paul writes to Titus about purity. This was the second point in, in Timothy's, in the letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. This is the legalism of the Judaizers who ignored the words of Christ, who ignored the vision of Peter, who ignored the letter that the church council in Jerusalem wrote to the Gentile churches in Antioch. Recorded for us in Acts 15, the gospel of grace freed men from the constraints of the civil and ceremonial law except for foods strangled or sacrificed to idols, blood, and the laws concerning sexual immorality. This is why we can say with absolute confidence today that when I go home and have my bacon-wrapped shrimp grilled on the barbie, I'm not committing a sin. But yet, I can honestly, sincerely say that homosexuality is a sin because the command that Jesus gave, the command that the apostles gave in the New Testament was to abstain from sexual immorality, a very general term that includes a whole host of very specific things, and homosexuality is one of those. Adultery is one of those. Fornication is one of those. There's all kinds of things 
that Jesus never talked about specifically, but is included in the codes of sexual immorality in the law. And Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. And not one jot or tittle of the law will pass away. Except Jesus now and the church through the Holy Spirit has made a law that says now in Christ the law is fulfilled and so you don't fulfill it by abstaining from eating certain things or from forbidding to marry. You keep it by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so the gospel of grace freed men from those restraints, but the gospel of grace continues to fence us and to protect us from those sins that we are not to engage in. Jesus taught, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out. Listen to the words of Jesus, Mark 7, 18 through 19. So he said to them, are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him because it does not enter his heart but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying most foods? No. Jesus said, thus purifying all foods. Jesus, in this verse, called all foods pure. Jesus teaches us what the real problem is and and it's not food. So he goes on in verses 20 through 23 of Mark 7. And he said, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications. That word for fornication is the word sexual immorality, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and defile a man. In Paul's letter to Titus, he affirms these men to be lazy gluttons. He also addresses this issue of purity. Abstaining from marriage, abstaining from certain foods does not help us achieve purity before God. Our Purity by, is by the blood of Jesus, not by the mortification of our flesh. And Paul says their whole motive in all of these false teachings is dishonest gain. These false teachers, in other words, were not preaching these things because they necessarily believed that they were true. They didn't necessarily believe their own words, but for the sake of dishonest gain. These are not simply ignorant of the truth. They actively suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and that is the condition of all men, according to Paul's letter to the Romans. This is why Paul is so strong in his language and his instructions to Titus. Let me read this again, Titus chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. One of them, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commands of men who turn from the truth. 
Listen to these words of the Apostle Paul. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Now again, let me remind you, Paul's not talking about those outside the church. He's talking about those inside the church who profess to know God, but their life seems contrary to their profession. For those people, Paul says, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Paul is not advocating gentleness here. That's what this word sharply means. It means harsh. Paul is saying, basically, be harsh with them. That is foreign language in our modern culture because our modern culture does not want harshness with anything or anyone. He is not advocating gentleness, but a sharp and a harsh rebuke and for the good of those receiving it as well as the good of all the churches. This is how their mouths will be stopped. This is how the subversion of whole households will be prevented. The rebuke comes that they may be sound in the faith, Paul writes. The rebuke is for correction, in other words. It's in love, not in anger, not in hate, not in malice. It's love that's motivating this sharp rebuke that they may be sound in the faith. This rebuke will equip them. It will equip them to reject those fables and those commandments from men who have turned from the truth. Therefore, the point of rebuking them sharply is not for their harm, but for their good. A good father does this good for his children as necessary. We live in a time when such rebukes are considered hurtful or even harmful instead of profitable. There is nothing mean or harmful in the command to rebuke sharply those who are behaving as liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Rather, it is a necessary remedy to produce sound faith that recognizes and stands in the truth. When God rebukes his church, it is so that she becomes sound in the faith. A wise man loves correction. Perhaps instead of the church praying that God would be merciful with us, maybe we should begin praying that God in his mercy and grace and love would bring the rebuke that we need so that we would once again become a people sound in the faith. Proverbs 9.8, do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Paul quotes one of their own prophets who called Cretans liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. As would be the case today among many, Paul does not back down or soften this claim. In fact, Paul doubles down and affirms this testimony spoken by someone else is actually true. This is what we call painting with a broad brush. But that is exactly what Paul does under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he is not afraid to tell the truth. I'm not advocating that we haphazardly paint people or groups with a broad brush. But hear me. And hear what the Word of God is saying. I'm also not advocating withholding truth because it may offend some group or some individuals. 
When we abandon truth, we abandon the ability to be free. And this is why we fast see our freedoms dissipating today in this nation. We gained our freedoms because of the gospel, and it is because we have abandoned the gospel that we are losing our freedoms. Our purity is found only in Christ. Verse 15, Titus 1, 15, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. When Paul, in verse 14, draws attention to giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth, he is referring to the false teachings that through the works of the flesh or in abstaining from certain foods or even marriage, one may keep themselves pure before God. This false teaching opposes the truth of the gospel. That's not good news. That's legalism. That's bondage. That's what Jesus came to deliver us from. That lie opposes the truth of the gospel that by God's grace alone, Christ is now our life and now our purity before God. I want to read the words of John Gill, a commentator, uh, on, this comment, on this commentary in, in this part of Paul's letter to Titus. He, he wrote this so eloquently, I, I could not say it better. And I want to read this to you. And I quote, The apostle, having made mention of Jewish fables and the traditions of elders, of the elders, takes notice of some darling notions that these Judaizing Christians had imbibed or retained, that there were some things which being touched or handled or tasted occasioned uncleanliness, and which the apostle denies to them that are pure. By whom are meant? Who is pure? He says, I'll tell you who's pure. To them that are pure, by whom are Not such who are so in their own eyes, who yet may not be cleansed from their filthiness. Nor do any become pure through ceremonial, moral, or evangelical performances done by them. They are only pure who are justified from all sin by Christ's righteousness and are clean through the word or sentence of absolution spoken by him and who are washed from sins in his blood and have that sprinkled upon their consciences by which they are purged and cleansed from all sin and who have the clean water of sanctifying grace sprinkled upon them and have clean hearts and right spirits created in them and whose hearts are purified by faith and have true principles of grace and holiness formed in them. In other words, they, they walk the talk. Whose graces are pure and genuine. Their faith is unfeigned. Their love is without dis dissimulation. And their hope without hypocrisy. And who, in consequence of all this, love pureness of heart. 
Whatever they touch or handle or eat, nothing can defile them. For it is not what enters into man that can pollute him, nor is any creature unclean of itself, but good and to be received with thanksgiving, close quote. That's not the gospel these false teachers were teaching. They were teaching a purity by works of the flesh. Thus the words of the apostle are true. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and their conscience are defiled. This is the problem with these false teachers and those who follow their false ways. They are defiled and unbelieving in their sin. Even their mind and conscience are defiled so that nothing is pure to them. Grace becomes a byword, but not a reality in their lives or in the lives of those who follow their deadly teachings. Paul then sums up his rebuke by pointing out the ultimate result of these fables and these false teachings that are infiltrating the churches. Titus chapter 1, verse 16. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him. If there is a statement that sums up the condition of the church in our land today, it is this. There are many today who profess to know God, but in works they deny Him. The apostle is not indicating a lack of people doing or speaking nice things to and for other people because you know the 11th commandment is be nice to everybody. In works, Christ is being denied because many who profess to know him are actually not walking out the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Your faith is to be walked out in a manner that is consistent with the testimony given in all of scripture and modeled for us in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus taught that there will be many in that day who will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do many things in your name? But Jesus said, I will say to them in that day, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I know you not. There are many who think they know Jesus, but the problem is Jesus does not know them. Jesus does not know all their good works that they think will save them because alone saves us. And when Christ saves us, we should know that we are known by him, not only that we know him. Your salvation in Christ is not according to your works, but his. Your good works are a result of his salvation, not the cause of it. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, his holy word alone is the final authority by which you are to live your life. That is the truth. The world hates truth, if you haven't noticed. God's truth is assaulted constantly every day with the intent to replace it. The purpose behind this is to build back a better lie. Yes, the pun was intended there. 
one that does not include God and his truth or even his people. Have you realized, have you seen lately in the world that there is no love lost between the world and God's people? In fact, there is outright hostility and animosity toward God's people. And many in the world would just assume that God's people would go away. This is futility on their part, though. God, His Word, His church, and the truth cannot be defeated. It cannot be demolished. It cannot be replaced. It will never be built back better into something else of the world's creation. It will never be overcome by evil. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ will prevail against the gates of hell because Jesus promised that it would. And you, Christian, should take great hope in that and not fall prey to the fear-mongering of the world who wants you to do exactly that, fall prey to it, and think there is no hope. For our hope is not in this world. It's not even in the orderliness of this world. Our hope is in Christ, period. We come to this table every week to affirm that Christ is our hope. We come to this table every week to affirm that Christ has already won for us the victory. His body on the cross, his blood shed on that cross, his resurrection and the resurrection life that now dwells in us testifies to that. So there is no reason for us to fear. There is great reason, though, for us to rejoice and to celebrate. And so we come to this table to feast and to celebrate in the victory that has been given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ, who has overcome our sin by his body and by his blood. And that, my friends, is good news.